Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. It's Violet, and this week we're visiting London at one of the most dramatic and dangerous moments in its history. When we think of modern London, the places that spring to mind are probably Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament and Piccadilly Circus. But the true heart of the city lies far to the east on Ludgate Hill. St Paul's Cathedral has been at the centre of London for over a millennium, a hub of religion, politics, news, education, publishing, and of course, shopping. In her beautiful new book, In the Shadow of St Paul's Cathedral, Margaret Wills looks back on the long and lively history of this extraordinary corner of our capital. The city's vast expansion westwards is a relatively recent phenomenon, and for centuries, London was essentially a square mile, with St Paul's at its western end and the tower to the east, with almost 100 churches crammed in between. For most of its history, The area around St Paul's bustled with everyone from shopkeepers to beggars, priests to prostitutes. Wills tells tales of strange ceremonies with pagan overtones, football games in the nave, radical preachers, folk moots, royal proclamations and wrestling matches. From around 1500, it was home to hundreds of shops selling books, writing materials, journals and prints. As we discover in this episode, Old St Paul's, as it came to be known, was a major casualty of the Great Fire that destroyed most of the city in 1666, paving the way for Christopher Wren's redevelopment and the magnificent building we know today. Margaret Wills, formerly publisher at the National Trust, is author of several books. She lives in London. I had a chat with her the other day. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Margaret. Thank you. Um, I'm very excited today because we are here in person in this beautiful building in Bedford Square and it's the first time for over two years which I've done an in-person interview so um, this is a really big day for me and for our producer Maria who's sitting beside us and it's very fitting that we are here in this part of London in Bloomsbury which is now the centre of the book trade because today we're going to be visiting St Paul's and in particular the churchyard which used to be the great centre of the book trade and Bloomsbury sort of took over didn't it? It did indeed yes. St Paul's. Absolutely yes. So it's very fitting that we're here and before we start to talk about your your year and to get into our time machine I wanted to ask you about your own relationship with St Paul's Cathedral and why you decided to write this book. Well, I am, I suppose, a Londoner. I was born in Essex, which was Essex at the time, but very close to London. And I've always felt an affinity with London. And uh, in 1953, uh, my father took me to to London. He was going to um, take photographs of the churches which were being floodlit before the Queen's coronation. And he wanted to, to go and look at them all because the excitement after the war of London again opening up. So we must have got out at 
St Paul's Underground Station and come up. And I remember going through the churchyard and being very, not, not impressed by it, almost sort of spooked by it because it was a total ruin. There was a wind going through all the ruins and all the weeds, the tumbleweed, uh, spinning round and it, I felt I could hear almost hear the the, the people who lived in the, the churchyard and, and populated it and I then went into publishing when I was uh, um, uh, after university and have been in publishing ever since book publishing first of all as an editor uh, and a publisher and now as an author so it, it fascinated me that this was indeed the centre of the book trade uh, and I've always wanted to write about it, and so I have. Can you describe the area around, because lots of uh, list, our listeners probably, and actually myself included, I, I'm not very familiar with St Paul's and the area around it, so can you describe what it means? Well, it's basically almost shaped like a rugby ball or an oval, uh, around, uh, in a shape around the cathedral. The cathedral in the Middle Ages was absolutely huge. St Paul's, uh, which was rebuilt after the fire, is not quite as big, although pretty large. Uh, and, and the area around, uh, the houses really formed a sort of a, a, an oval round it. And then there were the streets behind. So the churchyard was within that oval. And then the, the streets beyond were quite narrow streets, as indeed many of them in London were, because it also was formed the hinge for London. It was the hinge between the city, Cheapside, Guildhall, the Corporation of London, the Financial District, and the West End, which gradually grew and grew and grew. It was on the route between the two. Uh, you go through the churchyard from Cheapside and then uh, uh, down Ludgate Hill to Fleet Street, and Westminster beyond there. So it, it's a sort of central point. Uh, and obviously, it was quite a large area of open space. I say that advisedly. Uh, and then behind it were these much smaller streets, some of which you can still see. I mean, Carter Lane, which is to the south of, of the churchyard, if you walk down Carter Lane or on to the east, Bow Lane and Watling Street, you get the feel of what those streets must have been like. But the churchyard itself was quite open and unusually so, because medieval and then London right through packed with buildings. And of course, St Paul's was right in the centre of London for most of the hist history of the city. I mean, obviously now it's, it's kind of to one end of London. Yes, that's right, yes. I call it a hinge, but... Uh, which may be an odd term to use. Somebody else in a book, their book described it as the heart of London. And can you take us right back into the distant past and just talk about the foundation of the church? When was it founded? I know that the, there was some talk about whether it was, as so often with cathedrals, it was built on the site of a Roman temple. Tell us about that. Well, basically, London, can't tell now, but London, well, north of the Thames, consisted of two pieces of higher ground, one up Cornhill and the other Ludgate Hill. St Paul's was built on the westerly one, which is uh, uh, Ludgate Hill. 
Uh, and of course, as you say, people think immediately thought possibly that uh, it was on the site of a, of a Roman temple. And there is talk of it being the Temple of Diana, but nothing has been found. I think that uh, if you were to think about just north of St Paul's is Smithfield, which I always assumed was to do with blacksmiths, but actually means Smoothfield. I think it was an area which was relatively flat. They were able to build easily on it. So in the year 604, um, the Anglo-Saxons built the, the first uh, church on that site. There is some question of whether it uh, there had been something earlier somewhere else, but nobody knows. So Anglo-Saxon England, full of these things. At least three churches on that site in timber with a bit of stone later, but they all burnt down. In Norman times, a huge cathedral was built by William II, one of his ministers. Absolutely enormous. Uh, and not only is it on high ground, but it also, in the end, had a, a, a spire which rose hundreds of feet. So it must have dominated the city in an absolutely extraordinary way. Talk about muscular Christianity. And so London was already, by that point, a capital, perhaps not the capital, but a capital? Of... Um, it was, in, when it was first built in the 600, there were capitals yeah. of the uh, different uh, kingdoms, and then Winchester became the capital, and then it, mo- it was moved, transferred to London. London became more and more prosperous uh, as a port, an important trading centre. And that, because I thought that was really interesting, I hadn't sort of ever realised that, but reading your book, the realisation that the city of London, what we now call the city, where the financial centre, that was always a financial centre, and that that's the reason that it grew and became so wealthy and important, was because of trade and because of money, basically. I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, quite easy access down the Thames, although... In some ways, too easy because Vikings were able to come down the Thames and then much later the Dutch came down the Thames. But yes, it was like a highway uh, and and Winchester would not have been in the same position. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, which which I I found surprising, was the number of churches. So you mentioned just briefly there that there were three other churches all very close around St Paul's. Yes. Can yes. you talk about that? Was that normal? It seems very strange if you go out into the countryside today and each village will have its own church, but they're sort of spread out, you know, wherever the villages are. Was that was that a normal thing? What? Why did that happen? That's an interesting question. I think I read that you, well, we're going to talk later about the fire, but 87 churches in that little tiny area. Yes. Interestingly, it was the the Vikings who really took to founding churches, or the, uh, the uh, Scandinavians. Once they'd embraced Christianity, they, they really went great sort of eagerness. Was that to atone for their <laughs> other sins? It's interesting because St Clement Danes, yes. St Magnus, uh, interestingly, these churches were really quite, they had tiny uh, in terms of area, tiny parishes, uh, no more than sometimes no more than three acres. Of course, there were a lot of people living around them, and they felt great affinity to these churches. So, in, interestingly, uh, this could be a difficulty for St Paul's Cathedral itself because when funds were needed, fundraising was required, people were very loath to put their hands in their pockets because they would much prefer to support their own uh, parish church rather than the cathedral itself, which is an interesting idea. There were absolutely enormous numbers of them round round the churchyard. And do you think that 
So if you, for example, were somebody living in um, and around the churchyard in, I don't know, the 12th century, might you have gone to your little parish church to worship sometimes and then perhaps on special occasions would you have gone to St Paul's? How would that have worked? Uh, otherwise, who is the congregation for St Paul's? Well, it was for big events that people went into the church. So, for instance, the extraordinary uh, incident of uh, episode of... of uh, Prince Louis, the Dauphin of France, being acclaimed king because everybody was so fed up with King John. So it would have been, it was, of course, it was a, a, a secular clergy. Uh, there was a dean and canons of the church. And then it was the, the politics of the period. So it was the Guild Hall, the Lord Mayor, all beginning in the 12th and 13th century, the, Lord, uh, the, the idea of the mayor and then a Lord Mayor. And also... The court, which was based at Westminster, but coming to St Paul's for these big events. Okay, so it was less for sort of Sunday communion and, and more for big Absolutely. And, 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 and then later on, the, the screen very much cut the cathedral into two so that there was the, the services beyond the screen on, towards the East End. And then at the West End, and especially in the 16th and then 17th centuries, becoming very much part of the churchyard. You know, people going in there to wander up and down and find out the local gossip, uh, news, show, show themselves off in their latest finery. Shakespeare talks about uh, Falstaff hiring Bardolph in the, in the church, in the, actually in St Paul's Church itself. There were scriveners there helping people who couldn't write, uh, and, and there were prostitutes, and people used it as a loo. It was all kinds of... So it was really busy and really full busy. and completely the opposite of what we now think of. Absolutely. And, and uh, straight across the middle was a, was a public thoroughfare. So well, through, the church. through the church. So you could have people sort of uh, have, trying to have the divine service behind the screen. And then you have people with mules and horses and carts trundling through. That's just amazing, isn't it? And I, I read as well you talk about people holding football matches in the nave and wrestling and that was in the churchyard rather okay yes although who knows what happened <laughs> yeah it just yes. it seems absolutely extraordinary and just such a contrast to what churches are like these days well i'm yeah, it's sort of said if you think when you think about the cathedral close of say salisbury or wells or something like that you forget about that as far as the churchyard was concerned at st paul's and when i said earlier um, that it was an open space advisedly it was also full of buildings as well so it had the bishop's palace it had the dean's house it had a prison which was used by the bishop chantry colleges later on it was absolutely and st paul's school so Paul's school at the end. Absolutely. When, when was that founded? Well, that was founded very early on, but it was refounded by John Collett in fifteen in the beginning of the sixteenth century as a grammar school. But it could have been the school where Chaucer went, and, and indeed Thomas a Becket. So there was presumably schoolboys running around. Yes, exactly, playing football. Yeah, breaking <laughs> windows. And... So we just have this extraordinary idea of this big busy church full of all different types of people and surrounded by buildings and people living quite a lot of sort of homemade buildings sheds that kind of thing and now I think we should go to your your year so uh, Margaret could you tell us if you could travel back in time to any year in history which year would it be 
I have chosen the year 1666. People remember it because it was the year of the Great Fire. We've been describing very much the medieval cathedral up till now, but in 1666 the cathedral burnt down and it was a new a new era, a new scene. It doesn't stop it, 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 it being a very busy area, but not quite as, <laughs> as, as chaotic, well, chaotic as it was before. Before we go to your first scene, can you just tell us a little bit about what was happening in London in the lead-up to the fire and what was the situation with the cathedral? Because I know that there were, literally on the eve of the fire, there was a lot of discussion about the redevelopment of that area, wasn't there? There was problems with it and it, it needed attention. Well, yes, the cathedral was, was becoming dilapidated. Uh, it, it, uh, it, was, it was very old. It's very big. And as I mentioned earlier, there were problems with fundraising. In 1561, the huge spire on on the central tower was struck by lightning and burnt down. So it was just a truncated tower. And there were attempts made to do something about this. Elizabeth I got very cross with people because although she was never very generous, open-handed herself, she did she did give some money to try and uh, repair the tower and possibly uh, rebuild the spire. But other people didn't didn't follow suit, and so it carried on like this. And there were attempts, uh, Archbishop Lord, who was Bishop of London and then Archbishop, to try and do something about it in the early 17th century. But unfortunately, he got Inigo Jones to try and do some repairs. Uh, but Charles I was very keen on the idea of, of making a very grand west entrance rather than perhaps putting his money where, where it should have been, which was in the tower itself. So in 1660, when Charles II came back to return and became king at the Restoration, uh, it was realised that something had to be done. So a commission was formed, uh, including architects and prominent people, there were three architects, uh, one of whom was Sir Christopher Wren, who wasn't Sir Christopher then, was Christopher Wren, young uh, mathematician, brilliant mathematician, and Sir Roger Pratt and Hugh May. And the commissioners included John Evelyn, the diarist. And they were beginning to think, what do we do? And ironically, they were having an argument about whether the central tower should be capped by a dome, which was then now the new architectural thing to have, which... Wren wanted and Pratt was very much against, Evelyn wanted. A week after they'd had this argument about it, the Great Fire broke out. So the, the argument became academic. And one of the reasons that the cathedral was so badly damaged was because there had been timber scaffolding on the central tower while they were trying to work out what to do about repairing it. And so when the flames eventually arrived from Pudding Lane, driven westwards by these incredibly strong winds the flames started going up the timber reaching the roof and then burning the roof catching light uh, and lead from the roof coming down having uh, melted and the church was packed with paper because this was the center of the book trade and the booksellers who lived around put their books and their paper paper for books in St. Faith's Chapel, which was their chapel yeah. in, 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 the, in the cathedral, and it went up like a huge bonfire. 
but I suppose in some, and we'll talk about this later, but in some ways it enabled much more redevelopment, didn't it? I mean, yeah, not yes. that it was a silver lining, but it was, because obviously it was an appalling, appalling destruction. Well, I think now we should go to your first scene and we're going to, I believe, go shopping in the company of one of the greatest diarists and, well, probably the greatest... Englishman that's ever lived. I don't know. Interesting. Samuel Pepys. Well, he was certainly interesting. <laughs> he was interesting. Yes, he was. <laughs> a man of many parts. A man of many parts, exactly. So can you take us to our first scene, please? Yes. So we're talking about January 1666. On the 8th of January, the shops are at last opening following the Great Plague, the pandemic. It died down as a result of cold weather, the opposite of the current uh, 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 COVID pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about how the pandemic affected? So obviously we've just been we're going through our own pandemic. What what was their version of lockdown like? How did it affect life? Well, there there had been a whole series of epidemics. This one was the bubonic plague. Sometimes it was pneumonic plague. Sometimes it was bubonic plague. It hit in 1665. Probably came from the Dutch blame the Dutch for everything. And it took hold of London very, very quickly. And because it was that kind of disease, it hit people uh, who lived close to each other. So the city was particularly, and the poor parts of the city were particularly hit. And also the heat made it worse. John Evelyn, for instance, uh, he, he managed to get his family off down to the country, as indeed did Samuel Pepys. But they then stayed in London and they noted all this kind of, what was going on, what life was like. All the physicians, a lot of the physicians fled Charles II insisted on some of them coming back. I'm not sure that they did. One of the things that Evelyn noted in his diary for the 7th of September 1665 uh, was there perishing near 10,000 poor creatures weekly. I went all along the city and suburbs from Kent Street, which I guess is actually Deptford. or That know. was where he lived. Yes, yeah. Uh, to St James's, a dismal passage and dangerous to see so many coffins exposed in the streets now thin of people, the shops shut up, and all in mournful silence, not knowing whose turn might be next. So it, it, it does, really interesting how it, it does have those, has those echoes from now. One of the things about St Paul's Churchyard is that it's changed in, in very, very much in, in the last couple of years. I mean, I'm lucky to have been able to walk around London and to go, and it was very, very quiet, you know, sort of, uncannily so yeah and it, people had they had they had lockdown a rather horrific lockdown in 1665 which was people you know they just nailed up the houses of people where there was the plague and just left them to try and survive if they could which is horrific people thought this was absolutely inhumane and also if they had a funeral there were only six people allowed at the funeral really? so it's really fascinating how these things are redolent you know yeah and do we know how people accessed food and that kind of thing? Well, people did manage to sort of try and get food to, to, to people. And, and there was a, there's a famous painting, which um, when I was a child, in our island story of people handing their baby, having removed its clothes, because they did realise that clothes could carry the plague which, uh, because of fleas yeah. out of a window to people who were below, who took it and took it in because they wanted the baby to survive. And I think 
I think uh, Pepys actually mentions that in his diary. Uh, so people would have got the food up to these people. Right. What a thought, handing your baby out. My goodness. Yeah, we have suffered uh, in the last couple of years, but I think in comparison to previous pandemics. Well, we, we, we know how we've really got have. the vaccine. That, that, well, that yeah, is, exactly. exactly. Which, is, which is a difference. Yeah, and hospitals and hospitals and, and, and so many people yeah. at the time trying to work out what it was, whether it was whether it was carried. A Jesuit, Paul Kircher, who lived in Rome, he uh, who was visited by Evelyn, he had worked out it was microbes, but not many people took very much no, notice. Believed him, no, Pepys knew uh, Kircher's work as well, interestingly. But other people thought it was bad air, miasma, yeah. bad water, or, or the, the wrath, wrath of, of God. God. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, so Pepys visited a, a draper's shop in Paternoster Row and bought himself some fabric for clothes and he was looking for fabrics to furnish uh, the rooms of his wife Elizabeth so he he says up and my wife and I by coach to Bennett's in Paternoster Row few shops there being yet open and there bought velvet for a coat and camelot for a cloak for myself and thence to a place to look over some fine counterfeit damasks to hang my wife's closet and pitched upon one, and so by coach home again, I calling at the exchange, and so home to dinner. After supper, and considering the uselessness of laying out so much money upon my wife's closet, but only the chamber, to bed. (laughs) So he didn't stint on his own clothes. Camelot is a strong waterproof cloth, originally of camel's hair, and it probably in this case was mixture of goat and wool. And Pepys had visited uh, Paternoster Row in the past in, in his diary. He, he described several visits to Paternoster Row, which was full of draper's shops. And that's just near St Paul's, isn't it's it? Right, yes, it's, ju- it's right just to the north of uh, St Paul's churchyard. And in 1663, he recorded buying a new petticoat of striped silk for Elizabeth, and one of his Relatives by marriage was Sir William Turner, who was a leading member of the wealthy Mercer's Company, probably the wealthiest of all the city companies. And and he he went to his shop quite a lot as well. So there were drapers and there were booksellers in the churchyard and and in the streets around. And it was a real. I mean, was it? I'm imagining Oxford Street. Was it, it was high of... end. It was almost it was Knightsbridge, really. Right. Okay. Cheapside, probably yes. Cheapside was very, very high end. It was where the goldsmiths were, were and the uh, the drapers and jewellers. And then right next to it was 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 St Paul's Churchyard, and as, as I said, going like a hinge, going down into Fleet Street, a cross between Bond Street, Oxford Street. Yes. Okay. And do we have any idea what these shops would have been like inside? Were were they big? Were they would they have had di- different floors? Were they sort of like little department stores, or is that too no, much of a no. leap? I was talking to uh, somebody about how how a sh- the, the printer week into word who was the first mm. printer and to to set up uh, in East End as opposed to Westminster Abbey, and he set up a shop in fifteen hundred uh, at the sign of the Sun in Fleet Street, and his shop was thirty feet thirty two feet across, and this person said to me oh, I can't believe that somebody could have possibly fitted everything in there. Well, actually, it was twice as wide as most shops. 
So they're narrow. They're narrow and they go, but they go a long way back. And they are several floors. So they would have used the cellar probably for store. They used the ground floor either as a shop or as a, or as a, a workshop, like a printing press. Uh, and then there were floors above for the family and apprentices, etc. So they're narrow and high. And I mean, some of the ones that were actually in the churchyard were literally in between the buttresses. So they would have been almost like market stalls, wouldn't they? they, they yes, they were sort of, they're kind of a bit like, yes, I think they're a bit more than that, actually. I think they were probably more like... The ones at the Christmas markets, for example, which are like little... Yes, yes. You know, they are... They are proper structures that yeah. could protect against the weather. But... Yeah, although they had they had chimneys and people lived in them as well. So uh, if you go to Brussels now, uh, you can go to St Nicholas Church in Brussels, which is right in the centre, and there are still shops round. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, the one that, one that I had, do describe in quite a lot of detail in the, in the book is uh, when um, John Day, who was a Protestant printer, a bookseller, he wanted to have a temporary, temporary stall because he was desperate to get into the churchyard because that was a real centre. That would have been almost like a prefab. But the ones between the buttresses were slightly more like a very elaborate beach hut, only much more elaborate. Okay. They, you know, they had two floors and that kind of thing. Yeah. And they were, they were really absolutely, must have been awful for having the smoke coming out of the top, you know, yeah. for, the, for the cathedral. That didn't help matters. So now I think let's move on to your second scene, if we can, which is... This incredibly dramatic, well, it wasn't a moment, was it? It was four days, didn't the fire That's right. So can you take us to the scene and what we're looking at? So when, when Pepys and Elizabeth went to Bennett's in January 1666, they thought that the worst was over as far as the shops of the churchyard were concerned, but little did they know what was in store. So on the 2nd of September of that year, Pepys's maid rose early to prepare the Sabbath dinner and she woke peeps to tell him a fire had broken out in a bakery in Pudding Lane. Well, Pudding Lane is, is by London Bridge, so we're much further over to the east, although nothing in London is very far because of the square mile. And what seemed to be at first a small fire took hold of the very strong winds and spread fast, and peeps realised that, that there was something wrong. And so he went out into the, into the street and he went straight to the king, you said earlier, you know, what an, important, what an extraordinary man he was. And the idea that Pepys was able to just walk to Whitehall and say, I want to see Charles II, because he worked with James, Duke of York, uh, Charles's brother, at the Navy Board, and he knew them very well. And he wanted to go and tell the king there was something badly wrong. And in fact, on the way back, he, uh, he met the Lord Mayor, who's in a terrible state, having earlier said, when he was summoned out of his bed to be told that, that there was a fire, he said, a woman could piss it out. <laughs> Famous came, last he, words. Yes, he came to regret these words. By this time, he was a complete state. He was, Peeps describes him as being like a woman fainting rather than pissing out a fire. <laughs> and uh, saying, what can I do? What can I do? Nobody will take any notice of me. I tell people to pull down their houses and they won't. And did they have any kind of... I mean, there was no fire brigade, was there? No. The, was there any so, kind so, of... So the, the king was was the key, really. Although, actually, he couldn't do very much, but he did his best. So they did have fire engines. So what did the king do? Well, so the king, in the end, realising how bad it was, he got his, he got, uh, his soldiers to blow up houses... To break the... To, to create a break, yes. Luckily, 
London Bridge already had a fire break because of an earlier fire, so it didn't spread across the river to Southwark. And then also uh, James, Duke of York, did actually blow up the houses uh, to the west of the Tower of London, which is why St Olave's was saved where Pepys lived. But it, it was huge, the, 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 uh, the uh, result, the destruction. So on the 7th of September, the fire was quenched, basically. And Pepys climbed up from Paul's Wharf on the Thames up to St Paul's Churchyard. And he wrote in his diary and saw all the town burned and the miserable sight of Paul's Church, which was the cathedral, mm. with all the roofs fallen and the body of the choir fallen into St Faith's. Paul's School also, Ludgate, Fleet Street, my father's house and the church, that's St Bride's Church, and a good part of the temple, the like. And Pepys was born in 1633 in a house in Salisbury Square, just off Fleet Street, and had spent much of his childhood in the shadow of the cathedral, including attending St Paul's School at one stage. And his account of the Great Father, therefore, carries particular poignancy, because it was a whole of his childhood yeah, gone. his life. His life had gone. And London had experienced many fires over the centuries, with most of the houses built of timber and lathe and thatch. But the 1666 fire was so devastating because of the very, very strong winds that fanned the flames. And the idea of how strong the winds were, burnt papers from the booksellers were picked up in Windsor. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, and so nearly 400 acres had been burned within the city walls, a further 63 beyond in the west across the Fleet River, 87 churches, 44 livery halls, and 13,200 houses. And how many people died? Well, they say very comparatively few, but of course the figures are suspect. There's a rather touching description of, of a schoolboy, a Westminster schoolboy called William Tasville, going to the churchyard, finding the, the body of a, a, of a woman and, and of a dog, and he was horrified. Mm. So, And of course the woman probably could have been a very poor so no, no mention, yeah, yeah, a vagrant, yes, and no mention, you know, no, no record of her. No, and as you said, the churchyard in that area was full of people living who probably weren't necessarily. That's right. A lot of people did actually, yes, sleep out rough. Or, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So, so we don't really know. So comparatively few. A lot of people did get out. I mean, after all, they were given plenty of notice. The Thames was absolutely packed with people with their goods trying to get away. John Evelyn describes the river, uh, and Peeps both describe the river uh, with all these people with their, all their household belongings, and they themselves sent their families to the, to the countryside. A lot of people camped out in moorfields. Right. And luckily it was it wasn't too cold. It was September, so it was not too cold, but uh, it was it was pretty devastating. Yeah, horrific. Hi there, it's Peter here. Unseenhistories.com is now three months old and already it is packed full of enticing, illuminating and excellently presented historical material. If you give the site a visit today, you'll see many beautifully illustrated excerpts of books that we've featured on Travels Through Time. There's excerpts from Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, Nigel Pickford's Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester and Gary Shaw's Egyptian mythology, along with many others as well. 
For those of you who like maps, you might want to check out the utterly compelling series of pieces on the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862. That was a crucial moment in the American Civil War, along with a range of fabulously colourised images from Jordan Lloyd. It really is history for our times. Unseenhistories.com so let's move on to your third scene now, which is the, the, the aftermath and, and, and quite impressively speedy response. You know, I mean, the rebuilding was really began sort of quite quickly, didn't it? It, it did. I mean, it was, it, it was a terrible time because we were at war with the Dutch and the French. People would have liked to have had a proper, what John Evelyn would have described Anne Wren, as a proper rebuilding of London. This is an ideal opportunity to make it a beautiful city with straight streets and and wide streets etc but it was simply too it was a time of of crisis Mm. so uh, plans to make it to have proper planning were rejected both Evelyn and Wren both submitted within days plans for rebuilding very much built a sort of with the St Paul's Cathedral and the area around it being a central theme but uh, it was decided that that people should just rebuild their houses around the churchyard uh, and, and go back to their houses as soon as possible and get the economy going. The, the only thing that was, there were regulations, so they were trying to build not in tim, uh, not in half-timbered half houses, but in brick and stone uh, and, and uh, with tiled roofs, so, so that the houses would not burn mm. down the same way. And there was re- regulations about the, si- the size of the houses, uh, so the big, uh, the tallest ones on the main streets and then smaller ones in the streets behind. And it was remarkable how quickly people did get back. So one bookseller called James Allistree, I mean, it was devastating for the booksellers of the churchyard. They lost their stock. They also lost their intellectual property. So they decamped. It was amazing how how very um, practical they were. They decamped further north, not very far north, to Smithfield, uh, to the area, to Little Britain, which had already become a, a centre for the book trade already. So they decamped up there, and uh, James Allistry, for instance, went there. And then um, he died in 1670. By that time, he'd moved back into the churchyard, and the inventory shows that his shop was quite a considerable one, uh, 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 you know, several floors. So it, it, they, so they got back up. very quick. They caught up as fast as they could. Wren was horrified because he really wanted a sort of surroundings for when he started rebuilding the cathedral. But uh, it, was, it was all hands to the brickwork. <laughs> yeah, and Wren's plan for St Paul's was the one that was eventually chosen. Yes, Yes, so... But so, that took a long time, didn't it? So Yes, absolutely. So it was a building site as they argued about what kind of cathedral they were going to have, whether it should be a Greek cross, whether it should be cruciform, what style it should be. Yeah, there was one plan which people thought looked too much like a pagan temple. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. And in fact, you can see that if you go to St Paul's Cathedral now and go up to the Triforium, the great model is up there, and it's huge. I mean, people could walk inside it. And it does look quite like a <laughs> pagan temple. Um, yeah, Wren in the end was de- was reduced to tears with frustration by people arguing the whole time, you know, anything by committee. And in the end, Charles II just said, yeah, you've got a warrant, you know, just go ahead and change things as, as you wish, which Wren took as a sort of a nod and a wink to just adapt it. 
Yeah. And one of the big things was the dome, as usual. The sea coal, which rendered everything black, blackened everything, paid for the re- rebuilding of St Paul's and then of the parish churches. And when did it get cleared out and, you know, emptied so that it is the way it is today? Wren made sure that it was determined that uh, that, it, that it should uh, that he should not be filled with all these sheds and everything else, detritus. But at first, uh, it became a a source of absolute fascination for people. People came in droves to see what had happened immediately after the Great Fire. To sort of visit the site. To visit the site. And so Pepys went there in November of the year, so two months later, and he he wrote in his diary, this is on the 12th of November, how he went to view the corpse of a medieval bishop, Robert Braybrook. And he wrote in his diary, in his tomb... Out of the great church, innocent faiths, which is in the cathedral yeah. crypt, this late fire, and is here seen his skeleton with the flesh on, but all rough and dry, like a spongy dry leather or touchwood all upon his bones. A great man in his time, and Lord Chancellor, and now exposed to be handled and derided by some, though admired for its duration by others, many flocking to see it. I rather ironically, it was Braybrook at one stage who tried to stop people shooting at birds and, and playing football in the in the churchyard. I hope he was reburied with all <laughs> I think he was, yes. So Pepys was a fellow of the Royal Society, which had received its first charter from Charles II in 1662. And its full name was the Royal Society of London for the Promotion of Natural knowledge and the members wish to gain that knowledge through practical experimentation Mm -hmm. so Pepys merely showed curiosity when observing Bishop Braybrook but two fellow members carried the concept rather further and John Aubrey in his brief lives has a biographical sketch of John Collett the dean of St Paul's in the early 16th century and re-founder of St Paul's school his coffin had also been revealed by the fire so Aubrey wrote after the conflagration his monument being broken, somebody made a little hole towards the upper edge of his coffin, which was closed like the coffin of a pie, and was full of liquor, which conserved the body. Mr. Wilde and Ralph Greatorex tasted it, and was a kind of insipid taste, something of an ironish taste. The coffin was of lead, and laid in the wall about two foot and a half above the surface of the floor. This was a strange, rare way of conserving a corpse, Perhaps it was a pickle. As for beef, whose saltness in so many years the lead might sweeten and render insipid, the body fled to the probe of a stick when they'd thrust into a chink like bold brawn. So Mr. Wilde was Edmund Wilde, a wealthy amateur, inventor and horticultural innovator who had often helped the scientist Robert Hooke with his experiments at the Royal Society. And Greterix was a skilled scientific instrument maker who attended many meetings of the Society, although he never became a fellow, possibly because he was a craftsman rather than a gentleman. And um, did they survive this? Yes, both men appear to have survived this extraordinary and potentially hazardous experiment. Yeah, what a strange thing to do with the liquid in a coffin. I know, and you think of it lead as well. Yeah, exactly. Although they wouldn't have perhaps realised how dangerous lead was. I mean, you know, people used to use it for cosmetics as well. Yeah, they did. Elizabeth I was covered in lead. Yes, that's right. 
Um, what what a cocktail! And I also found it fascinating that when Wren, you know, when they actually began the sort of the clearing up and and the removal of the old church, what was left of it, um, before they could start rebuilding the new church, that they found lots of antiquities in Roman. Can you tell us what what did they? Yes, find? indeed. Wren is really a sort of interesting man. Of, of you know, he's very much a man of our time as well, really. Uh, and of course, he was also a fellow of of the Royal Society. And you know, architecture was really his second career. Amazing. Although it's the one we think of with him. So he was very aware of the uh, importance of of the archaeological evidence because this was a time when archaeology started becoming important. John Aubrey, who I mentioned earlier, he was a fellow of the Royal Society as well and one of his uh, papers that he gave to the Society was all about Stonehenge and Avebury, which he came upon while hunting one on Boxing Day once. I mean, how can you come upon a stone circle by, by chance? But Aubrey is terribly important from that point of view. So archaeology is being, the study of archaeology is uh, born at, at this yeah. period, you know, subsequently the Society of Antiquaries, etc. So Wren told his workmen that if they found anything, that they were to report it to him and, and and not to not to sort of chuck things around but you know to sort of stop the excavation and then people went and looked somebody I think it was an apothecary who was really interested went and uh, he drew some of the finds that, that that were uncovered they were very keen on the idea of the Roman temple so they were still looking out for that yeah but they didn't find anything no, the evidence really was was that this was a had been a rather smart Roman suburb. Yeah, well, and it, that's such a lovely thought, isn't it? All that stuff that's underneath our feet all the time, and recently Southwark was it in Southwark? Yes. That big mosaic was that, that was mosaic, found. absolutely amazing. I'm so looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's such a wonderful idea, though, isn't it? When you walk around, well, anywhere, but especially the pavements of London, and just imagine what's in layers underneath. Yes, yeah, Southwark turns out to have been rather a smart suburb as well. So, so yes, the administrative centre of Roman London was really uh, Cornhill and that area. Yeah. Uh, with the Forum. But you, you never know, there might no. be Diana's Temple somewhere. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. So I think now we, there's just one question left and I already know what your answer is and I think it is it's my favourite um, of all the interviews I've done. So if you could have um, picked something up from one of these scenes that we visited today, Margaret, and brought it back with you to the present day, what would it be? Well, it would be a Parmesan cheese. Can you elaborate? So, Wren obviously was a man who liked his tummy as well. So, one of his wonderful descriptions, um, living at the naval residence in Seething Lane, was one June night going up onto the, onto the leads of his residence. He was a great musician as well and playing his lute and singing and drinking wine and eating batago, which is now very fashionable. In I've just been to Rome and, and I had batago on, on my mozzarella because that, that's a mullet roe. So he obviously liked these exotic foods. So the Parmesan cheese would have also come from Italy and would have been very much a prized possession. It must have been jolly expensive. So he was really worried about the fire coming towards Seething Lane, which is where he lived. So on the 4th of September, he dug a hole in the garden in Seething Lane and buried his wine along with the Parmesan cheese. 
And that was it. Any... And then in the event, Seething, Seething Lane survived the fire thanks to James, Duke of York, having yeah. blown up. We always think of James as being rather hopeless, but actually he was he rather effective. Yes, effective at this kind of thing. He did manage to save that area. So Peeps returned and dug up the precious cheese. And I hope he enjoyed it along uh, well, with his I, wine. I love that, that. That was what he, you know, that, that, that eternal question, what would you save if you had? <laughs> and for him... That's a wheel of Parmesan cheese and some wine. I think that's probably a very sensible choice. And anyone that's been watching this wonderful series called Stanley Tucci Searching oh, for yes, Italy, yes, I don't I... know if you would think that anyone who's been watching that recently will understand about the Parmesan cheese because there was an episode where they went to a place where they make these cheeses. And it, yeah, fascinating. This has been such a lovely joyful episode. Thank you so much, Margaret. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it too. Thank you very much. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Margaret Wills about her latest book, In the Shadow of St Paul's Cathedral, which was published last week. For more information and some interesting images, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com, where you can also see our full back catalogue of episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>